from Kurtco Media. It suddenly had its time because the image of it as a symbol of freedom, peace and friendliness is still there. That was the voice of Russell Hayes, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome, and welcome to my guest, Russell Hayes, all the way from London. Russell, good to have you on the show. Hi, Robert. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Russell is a very prolific author of numerous books, automotive titles. We're here to talk about his latest, which is called Volkswagen Beetles and Buses, Smaller and Smarter. Published this year, 2020, by Motor Books, an imprint of Quarto Group. What a great book, Russell. I've had quite a bit of fun with this over the last few days. A masterful work. Oh, thanks very much. It was a lot of fun to write. I can imagine, because these are fun cars, and man, there are a lot of them. Volkswagen produced 21,529,464 Beetles, according to Wikipedia, making it the longest-running and most manufactured car of a single platform ever made. Give or take a few thousand, whether or not that's accurate, that goes against something like 15 million Model T Fords. So it really gives us a sense of absolutely how prolific and numerous these cars were. It is a phenomenal number. And you were right. It's over 21 million. And the last air-cooled Beetles were only made in 2003. So they've not been gone that long. Well, if anybody knows about these things, it is you, Russell. So it really kind of begs the question, what got you into these? Well, I'd always had an interest in Volkswagens anyway. And one of my earlier books was A History of the Volkswagen Golf, which was kind of like the next Volkswagen's people's car after the Beetle. This year, 2020, is, is an anniversary of 75 years since the first Beetle came off the production line after the war. And it's 70 years since the first Volkswagen Transporter or bus was made at Wolfsburg as well. That's quite a legacy for these cars. And I imagine that in Europe, they're probably more plentiful than they are in America by virtue of the fact that so many of them stayed there after their manufacture. But that's a long time for a model to be around. What I've tried to do with the book was just bring it all together, go through the full design history history of both vehicles running in parallel with each other. Then also look at where they sat in cultures of different countries and how they moved and changed their meaning over time. And also how they're looked upon now and what their impact is. I obviously remember growing up with both species of Volkswagen, the Beetle and the Transporter. It literally informed an entire generation of people growing up in America and around the world. But if that was ancient history, let's go back to real ancient history, pre-war history, and start us off from the beginning. Give us enough knowledge to be dangerous. These things started with a Ferdinand Porsche design from like 1931, is that right? The idea of a sort of German people's car had been around since the 1920s and there was a real determined campaign that there should be an affordable pardon my German pronunciation Volksauto, which was car of the people that people could actually afford. The pressure for that led to Ferdinand Porsche set up his own design consultancy in I think 1931 to start peddling around a design for a new type of Volksauto to various manufacturers. There were two motorcycle manufacturers that were interested and took him on to design prototypes, Zunda and NSU, who both wanted to move from motorcycles into small cars. And he presented a design of a rear-engined car with a simple platform to both of them. But neither of them in the end had the money to go through with it. But all this incremental design work, testing and prototypes started to give him a more and more improved model. And of course, the 
person who came along and gave the greatest push to it was Adolf Hitler. There was certainly a connection there and maybe a little bit of confusion as to the extent to which her Dr. Portia played a role, but certainly the political vision at the time afforded him an opportunity to really explore the design. Hitler was so determined that there should be a people's car to run on the new autobahns as a symbol of modern Germany and also as a vehicle for export that he pushed and pushed Porsche's design. But he really gave Porsche a really hard time trying to screw him down to the lowest possible production price. And Porsche, I think, was really under pressure to try and get this car manufactured at the lowest possible price. But what ended up benefiting the eventual design is that millions of miles were covered in development work. By the time the car was presented in its final form ready for production just before the outbreak of war, it was a very well-tested car already, possibly one of the biggest test programs that any car had ever had to that date. So when it came out after its cause for the war, it was already a very well-developed car and likely to be very reliable. When was the actual first Volkswagen Beetle, as we might know it today, offered for sale? And where? First, it was only available to the occupying Allied forces because the British needed transport very quickly. So in order for, I think, 2,000 Beetles from the British started things going. That's really interesting because digging back into my World War II history, certainly Germany was essentially divided among the three Allied forces of the U.S. and Britain and the Soviet Union. In a lot of ways, the VW factory was kind of a hot potato and the British ended up getting it, didn't they? It could have possibly gone to Ford of America, but Henry Ford came and visited, tried worn-out Volkswagen from the war years and did think it could be a possible car for sale in Europe with a bit of refining, but backed off because it was too near the Russian border. But the British were sent in to assess what the factory could be turned to and there was quite a contingent of them that wanted the factory just to be used as industrial units, not to go back to car manufacture. But Britain needed the German economy to get back into gear and one of the ways of doing this was to help them reset up production of this car which was kind of ready to roll before the war and the factory wasn't as badly damaged so eventually it was put back into action. But the British were certainly conflicted about what they were doing. The very small team of people realised that they were potentially going to damage the British motor industry but that was their job to get this car running. Certainly the continent needed transportation as well down south of the Alps in Italy. The ESO was the equivalent of the BMW Isetta but those little cars were essential in providing some very inexpensive post-war transportation as well. Uh, of course those were not as developed as the Volkswagen because as you said that had millions of miles on it in terms of development. The Volkswagen as well was an interesting prospect because it was actually quite big for a small car. You could fit four people inside. It was a decent size and it had an engine of more than one litre. It had a 1300cc engine which meant it could cover long distances quite easily because it had been designed to run at much less than its actual abilities. It had been throttled down so it could just cruise all day flat out on an autobahn and not give any trouble. Whereas if you tried to do that with a European water engine water-cooled car it would have just expired. <laughs> That's a very delicate way of putting it. I love that. <laughs> so there are some names in your book that got me interested in the who's who of early Volkswagen. I guess the British brought in a guy named Nordoff, is that right? Heinz Nordoff was head of the Opel truck plant before the war and uh, interestingly he famously met Hitler at the Berlin Motor Show before the war when Opel has showed its version of they thought they could make a people's car and Hitler had just rubbished it completely because it was too expensive. But Nordhoff had a good reputation and was brought in by the British to manage the new plant. He was an extraordinary figure because he became this great sort of benevolent patriarch, setting up the factory again and putting the car back into production and 
refining it over the years. But I understand that originally he didn't rate it at all, but he realised that rather than try to start again, the best thing to do was to take this sound design and just refine it and refine it and refine it, but not try to work on a replacement. And he was a very enlightened employer. He made sure that all the workers had access to good health care. The factory even had a creche quite early on. Going into the 1950s, he was a very cultured man. He brought in the Berlin Philharmonic to play concerts in the works canteen once a year. Under his leadership, Wolfsburg, the factory and the town that grew around it became this model for the new Germany, the reconstructed Germany. It was seen as a model town with good facilities and happy workers and good accommodation for everybody. So it became a sort of beacon for visiting press to go to Wolfsburg and see the reconstruction of Germany in the 1950s. Although Wolfsburg is still the nucleus of Volkswagen manufacture, I guess there are plants all over the world. And even back then, there were plants elsewhere. Exports were always in the plan for the Volkswagen Beetle and then the transporter. I think the first overseas assembly was actually in Ireland because when they couldn't set up new plants, they would equip local manufacturers with enough production tools to assemble kits. So that started very early on. And then by the early 1950s, they were already well on the way. The plant in Brazil was set up pretty early on, then Mexico, other plants in Germany, certainly, and assembly operations all over Europe. But you think about it back into the early post-war years, a car like the Volkswagen was completely antithetical to anyone. certainly in America. And I was reading one of the British road tests from 47 in your book, and they were talking about how completely different it was too. I mean, think about it. This thing's a rear engine car. It's air-cooled. It's got great fuel economy. It's small and simple, but as you said, roomy inside. What a weird and strange combination of attributes. Just no car had it. It was very difficult for a lot of people to get their head around. Certainly in Britain, you were seen as quite a quirky individualist if you bought a Beetle. Not least because buying a German car in the 1950s was a bit sensitive, to say the least. I can well imagine it was, especially with the patriotic nature of the British uh, having barely gotten through the war alive. But also the people who did buy it, they became fanatical about its virtues. Very soon there were owners clubs, both in America and in Britain. As soon as you could buy a car Volkswagen's in, in the 1950s, there were owners clubs. They would write letters in their magazines saying how much they loved their Volkswagen's, that they didn't break down, how they lasted 20,000 miles without needing a set of tyres and how they went back to a British car and it was rubbish and so they went back to a Volkswagen. The facts were there. I covered a test by Witch magazine, a consumer magazine in in the early 1960s and they bought a Mini and a Ford and a Volkswagen. The Volkswagen was the only one that passed the test without falling apart. I mean, the Mini needed two gearboxes. Let's talk about the connection. Maybe you can help to enlighten the connection between the brand's Volkswagen and Porsche. So here we've got Dr. Porsche. Guy got locked up after the war by the French. Didn't really survive much after that. But prior to all of the post-war shenanigans, he and his son, Ferry Porsche, had actually started another company to make sports cars. How do these cars relate? In fact, I remember back as a kid, detractors would call Porsche's expensive Volkswagens. Porsche always had this connection to motorsport because in parallel with the work in Volkswagen before the war, he designed the auto union race cars. They were superb pieces of machinery. That's right. 1939, terror of the track. He was independent from Volkswagen as a design company, but he was effectively Volkswagen's in-house designer until the late 1960s. Volkswagen didn't really need to develop a successor for the Beetle or the bus because they were going so well, they just needed to refine what they had. 
Porsche was just on hand as their design consultancy. Do you think that the shared brand DNA strengthened both brands or did it do more for Volkswagen than Porsche or vice versa? I think in the early days, it probably did more for Volkswagen than Porsche. And certainly in the States, great play was made of this because all the enthusiast magazines say, hey, here's this new Volkswagen. Did you know it was like a Porsche? But a very Porsche was pictured in publicity photographs with a Porsche Speedster sitting next to a Beetle. So they made a lot of the connection. And of course, in America, Volkswagen and Porsche dealers were usually one and the same. It definitely blurred the lines and strengthened the connection between those two brands. Certainly even into the 70s when the 914 was introduced, it was a Volkswagen initially and Porsche sort of appropriated it almost under duress. And I guess there's still some question as to what you really want to call it. You're right. That was a funny little confection that Volkswagen decided that, mm, maybe it's not quite the right thing for us to have a sports car because they were very cautious in the early 1970s about speed and safety. And so I think they moved it to one side to become a Porsche rather than a Volkswagen because in the late 60s, Volkswagen was going through quite some financial problems and it was seen as a bit frivolous to be marketing a sports car. So the 914 got shunted sideways to become a Porsche. By the way, they're remarkable cars. They're finally getting the respect that they've long deserved. And I'm glad to see that in the collector community. I like to laugh that everybody's a designer. And of course, the Beatles recognized as one of the most accomplished, perfect automotive designs in history. But it does present little evidence of having evolved over that 70 plus years, even though there were improvements along the way. In terms of the collectability of these and your experience with them, what represents the most desirable of the old Volkswagens? The very, very earliest one are the most sought after, although there are very few of them. And I think the absolute holy grail is a pre-war Nazi beetle, I'm afraid. I see. How many of those have not been squashed? There must be only a handful, but they're immensely valuable. From my point of view, a sort of mid-60s beetle with the kind of towel rail, handlebar bumpers, that's my optimum. Before, it needed to have big, thick bumpers put on it because of safety legislation and the big elephant's foot tail lights on it. Elephant's foot, you're right. That's exactly what they look like. But certainly, as far as the collectors are concerned, a split-screen camper van is the absolute thing to have. And the prices for those split-screen camper vans have just gone through the roof. I guess the 23 window is the holy grail of holy grails. Is that right? There weren't that many sold in the first place, and it was the most expensive bus you could get. And obviously, the survival rate wasn't very high. So they're actually very rare cars now. Some of them, you see six-figure price tags on them at auction and whatnot. And they certainly command a lot of respect among collectors. Absolutely. And it's amazing that something that was once so cheap and so disposable has become so valuable. Isn't that the way it always is? I mean, to think back on it, I grew up in Los Angeles where, of course, cars are on the road every day of every month of the year. And I remember when Volkswagen Beetles were such a ubiquitous sight. I mean, you'd see two, three, four, five a day just driving around, sometimes more. And I think back on it now and I, I can't recall the last time I actually saw a Beetle in actually use and not at some kind of a car event. What was once so common is now an absolute rarity. Yeah, sometimes you don't notice things have gone, do you? Until... They're everywhere and then they're nowhere. Hopefully there are enough of that original 21,529,000 and change Beatles that we've still got a few left. There could be quite a few south of the border, I would think. Second life in Latin America. That's an interesting concept. You're absolutely right. Well, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. 
Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Russell Hayes. Obviously, we're here to talk about Volkswagen Beetles and buses, but there were a few, I'm going to call them cul-de-sacs, not necessarily dead ends, really, that Volkswagen took with cars like the Carmen Ghia and their Type 3, the Squarebacks and the Fastbacks. Talk about those cars. Where did they kind of fit in the whole family tree? Well, they were really interesting sidelines. Most of them are actually pretty successful, lasting for quite a long time. Through the 1950s, Volkswagen was doing huge business with the Beetle exactly as it was, especially in the States and the transporter was going great too. So they didn't need to change the design more than refining it, but they started to explore other niches. One of them had always been a kind of sporty car and there was some pressure from the dealers and certainly pressure from the US and also in Germany. The German economy was improving greatly in the 1950s and 60s and the Germans wanted something to supplement. They wanted the Volkswagen reliability and the service and everything, but they wanted something a little bit prettier. And the Carmen Gear was an interesting project. It started off as a design for, I think, an American concept car by Gear, the Italian coach builder, who then sold the idea on to Volkswagen. And it ended up being built by a specialist coach builder, Carmen, who also did the convertible Beetles. It was a lovely little car and obviously has its huge following today. It wasn't that much faster than the Beetle, but it was, as you know, beautiful two-seated little coupe, a smart town car. It didn't matter that it wasn't fast. It just looks great. And it had all those Volkswagen virtues, reliability and good service. And they were quite rare because they took quite a long time to build and quite a lot of the panels were largely hand finished. So they were quite a premium product. I have to say, I see a Carmagia on the road today, whether it's the more common 14 or the really rare type 34. And those are absolutely beautiful cars in every way as jewel-like and exquisite as any 356 coupe. I mean, they were really something special. In a lot of ways, they were better looking because they had that little bit of Italian flair. They lasted quite a long time in that original form. In the end, they were built in Brazil as well. Carmen started another offshoot. But then there were the other offshoots, like the Type 3, the Squareback. That was kind of like the middle-class Beetle. It was an attempt to provide a Beetle for the German market, which was much more modern looking, had a bit more space, and you could see out of it a bit more, bigger glass area, and a bit more space for luggage. It took the Beetle elements, the Beetle floor pan and the engine, but managed to relocate the fan to the top of the engine so that it sat less high, so you could have an extra trunk in the rear and in the front. In a lot of ways, it was sort of the predecessor, without knowing it, of the Golf. It was a very modern car, and it's kind of boxy and did the whole thing. And it was quite a good seller. I think I believe it was the first Volkswagen in the US to have fuel injection. Well, that's probably a good way of segueing into the next part of our conversation, and that's really Volkswagen coming to America. They were really the ones who ushered in the whole concept of a compact car. Fuel was cheap and Americans were still driving these big beef-end dinosaurs, land yachts really. And then all of a sudden a little Volkswagen Beetle comes over here and made some real waves. By the time the Volkswagen arrived in the early 1950s, the idea of the small car in America had just completely gone. There'd been the Crosley just after the war, but as soon as people could afford bigger cars, they abandoned that. It got off to a slow start in the States. When it was first imported in the very early 50s, I think 50 or 51, the Dutch importer bought one or two over and they were just ridiculed. The press called it Hitler's car and he touted it around to various dealers in terms of trying to get them to take it on. They weren't interested. Volkswagen initially had to retreat and rethink and then come back to America with a much more considered offering. What they did was they started by 
getting all the dealers in place and the service in place and the parts in place so that you had this car, which wasn't the latest thing, but you could get parts anywhere. They were cheap. It could be readily serviced, which is what a lot of the imported cars in the 1950s failed to grasp. They bought the cars in cheaply enough, but then there was no backup. But by getting this organization in place and this sort of service ethos and backup, which was so new, it started a really good foundation. And it did start to trade off the Porsche name a bit. It got a following amongst people, not who needed a cheap car. And that's what was interesting. It wasn't bought by people who needed a cheap car. It was bought by people who wanted an honest, small, reliable second car. And it also, at that time, European things were starting to make their influence felt. People were traveling abroad again on European holidays. It traded on that kind of wave of interest in European things as well. And it became an anti-car in a way. It became, a, well, I could afford a big Packard, but I don't want one. I want this nice, modest little car because it's not going to be out of date when the model year changes. It's not going to look completely different and my neighbor won't be able to tell whether I've got a 56 Beetle or a 58 Beetle. That's absolutely true. You really have to be an expert entomologist to tell one year of Kafer from the next. One thing I found out, which I thought was great, was that Volkswagen had to print a book for its own dealers called What Year Is It? Which had pictures of what changed year by year. And so if they had a Volkswagen Beetle come in for a trade-in, they could go, oh yeah, that's got a two exhausts and that shaped rear window and um, well, that's got that hubcaps on it and that sun visor. Oh, so that's a 52, a 53. Volkswagen made such an impact. Where to even start? Some of the best advertising during the 50s and 60s was done by Volkswagen's agency, a New York firm called Doyle Dane Bernbach. We all remember growing up with those ads if we were around at the time. I mean, the two shapes known the world over ad where they show a beetle in a Coke bottle. The lemon ad, some inspector found a minor scratch on a piece of glove box trim, so this thing's going to the crusher because we're not going to sell it to our customers. One of them didn't even have a picture in it. There was just a blank space. And they said, we haven't got anything to show you this year because nothing's changed. Isn't that refreshing? Oh, man, I love it. But you're right. These ads became cult reading very early on. Their recognition amongst people was immense. The dealers used to say that people would come into them quoting the latest ads. One headline I loved, which certainly is opposite today in America with all the mini mansions and all the ersatz architecture, that said it makes your house look bigger thought that was pretty clever. And they never really changed the style. That tone and that style lasted them for decades. It lasted very well. And it also exported. Bill Den Burback opened an office in Mexico as well and started doing the worldwide advertising for Volkswagen. And the ads were never mean. They were always modest and they admitted that the cars had flaws. Whereas in contrast, some of the American adverts at the height of the bitterness were quite nasty. There was this Rambler ad which had a line of Volkswagens behind the latest Rambler. They said, well, it may not be the cheapest, but it's not especially ugly. Well, they uh, did not have the last laugh, did they? Because the Volkswagen continued to soldier on in so many different guises. The Volkswagen in America represented lots of things. I think the one vehicle that probably had the greatest impact was the one we should probably start talking about now, and it's also obviously a huge part of your book. That was the bus, the transporter, the combi, the big box on wheels that really became such a ubiquitous ubiquitous fixture in America during the 60s. Where do you even start? Well, this was part of the interesting part of the book, contrasting the two. The two cars went on parallel tracks. The bus took off in a different direction to the combi. In America, certainly, they really didn't know what to make of it when it came out. 
at all because small vans did not look like this. And when they tried to sell the combi with seats and windows, people just couldn't work out what it was. One great story was apparently that when people started buying the combis and using them as station wagons, some parking lot attendants wouldn't park them because they said they didn't park trucks. In America, they probably came around at a time when the concept of the road trip was really coming to the fore. I mean, it was a very prosperous decade. Families would go on trips and this afforded an opportunity to do so economically and also kind of bring everything but the kitchen sink. The early camper vans really took off. They really was seen as something new, as a way of escaping and exploring this big country. And of course, they could do it because, albeit very slowly, but they could do it reliably. And the early camper van conversions were so ingenious, managing to squeeze all these little cabinets and wash basins and folding down beds into this tiny space. One detail I liked was that one of the conversions used the spare wheel as the base for a picnic table. Oh, that's incredible. That is one thing I absolutely didn't know. We'll take a short break, but we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. The Volkswagen bus was here at a time when lifestyles and social norms were changing, and the VW bus played a big role in that. A few episodes back, we spoke with an automobile conservator named Brian Howard about preserving a very special VW bus that was used by civil rights advocates in South Carolina to transport people while educating them about their right to vote. And I know you talk about this bus too. It's now in the Historic Vehicle Association register. And we had as a guest on the show recently, Diane Parker, who's the director of that program. Obviously, it's a very, very important artifact from the era. That bus is actually called the Jenkins bus. It was used by Esau Jenkins and his wife, Janie. They wanted to improve opportunities for African-Americans in South Carolina. This little bus, I think it was secondhand and very hard used, was a part in increasing equality in the Deep South in the 1960s. It was found mouldering in a backyard. The tailgate is in the Smithsonian now because it's considered such an important artifact. That was a great illustration of one of the characters that the bus took on. It was often used as transport for young people to go across continents. My roommate in college took a trip down to Guatemala in his Volkswagen bus when we we were in college. And of course, his father owned a Volkswagen dealership. So I think he felt a little more assured that if it broke down, he could get it back. But the old thing soldiered on down there and he got back in one piece. You don't go very fast, but you get there. It was used by people who were on UN humanitarian missions as well. 
quite a lot in the 60s, people dispensing words of peace to people around the globe. It was also appropriated as kind of a symbol of the anti-war, anti-establishment movement of the time. Uh, I mean, it was peace, love, and of course it was also sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I did a little research for our show, and apparently there was a country western song that I remember from the mid-70s called Convoy, and the lyrics were about a bunch of truckers driving their big rigs across country, and one of the last lines was, with a thousand screaming trucks and eleven long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus. So <laughs> it even made its way into country western. You look back and you see this legacy. What about the future, Russell? What do you think is in store for the Beatle and the concept and the microbus going forward? It's interesting to see the way that the Beatles' image and its legacy have diverged from the from the bus, really. The Beetle was the cult car for a long time, and its image was everywhere in posters and, and cartoons and T-shirts and things. But somehow the bus has become such a more powerful symbol of travel and good times and the ultimate sort of benevolent vehicle. It's overshadowed the Beetle, and the Beetle has kind of retreated into the past even more than it was. If you look around, the image of the VW bus is absolutely everywhere all across the world. Most of the time, people are careful not to put a VW badge on it so they don't infringe the copyright. But if you ask a child to draw a camper van, they will draw a VW with a little split screen and a two-tone paint job straight away. Well, there was the new Beetle, which was successful as a sort of retro car for nearly 20 years. There wasn't a retro bus. Volkswagen tried all these concept vehicles which looked like the old bus and then decided for one reason or another not to go ahead. But it suddenly had its time because the image of it as a symbol of freedom, peace and friendliness is still there. And Volkswagen has gone ahead and decided to use that kind of retro bus look for its new electric bus, which is due out in 2022. And they've said they won't do an electric Beetle, not in a new form. But the bus is by far the most powerful image there is now. That's a really, really interesting observation. I know the new Beetle back when it was first shown as a concept around 94 and then came to market a few years later was a bit of a polarizing reinterpretation because let's face it there's nothing that could be the original Beatle although Jay Mays and Freeman Thomas Freeman was a guest on our show recently did a pretty remarkable thing resurrecting that nameplate in a thoroughly modern car it'll be interesting to see how the bus is accepted and whether or not it's appropriated by the same kind of peaceful forward-thinking souls that drove them in the first place it's certainly very much anticipated and oddly enough it's original engine design made it ideal for an electric vehicle with an engine at the back and now it's got an electric motor at the back and a flat floor so you have your battery underneath it's almost as if it was meant to be what's next up in terms of the books what are you planning the current project is another one for motor books which is again huge fun it's called the big book of tiny cars it's a collection of very small cars through history from all over the world starting at the Oldsmobile curve dash and going right through to the modern day and things like the smart car and the new mini but of course spending quite a lot of time in the 1950s and all the bubble cars and the micro cars which had that extraordinary boom of mad little cars in the 1950s, which are now so collectible. And quite a collector fan base, too. Exactly. I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about some of these other cars that you're equally expert in. I can't recommend highly enough your newest book, though, Volkswagen Beetles and Buses, Smaller and Smarter. It's beautifully produced, obviously beautifully written, but it's equally beautifully laid out and should be in every automotive library. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. We look forward to having you back on the show. That'd be great. Look forward to it, too. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive.
This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.